Here's an interesting thought, perhaps a bit philosophical, and more than a bit, religious. If aliens, as in aliens from outer space, have not heard the gospel, then how will they be saved in the afterlife? Extraterrestrial civilizations out there um, beyond Earth is something that was already on the table being discussed and debated among philosophers in, in, in ancient Rome, ancient Greece. It was already back there. Um, and when Christianity comes along, it continues on. And in fact, by the time you get to say that, I think at least the 17th, probably the latest is the 17th century, most literate people in the Christian West, at least, believed that it was likely there were extraterrestrial civilizations on, on the planets um, and on the moon, by the way. The moon would have been included in that. Um, and you have, in fact, theologians who um, go to great lengths, who try to, in fact, make calculations about how many people, inhabitants, planets like Jupiter or planets like Mars or how many people live on the moon. That's wild. On, how would they do yeah, that? Based did you know that stories of early modern UFO sightings, say from the 1950s, weren't all that, how should I say it, exciting. Most of these encounters were spiritual experiences for humans, but Hollywood didn't portray it that way, did it? That's because those early stories were just not dramatic enough to make movies that make money. Hey there, news peelers. Today is June 3rd, 2022, and this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News podcast. Once a week, I have the pleasure of speaking with distinguished professors and critically acclaimed authors who help us better understand our news and current events by providing some perspective from our past. We call this peel into history behind news. Sometimes we find humor in what they share, sometimes it's a shocker, and sometimes they reveal a past that's offensive. Regardless of what they share, we're always the better for learning from our intellectual and engaging conversations with them. So the peel.news is not for everyone. If you want headline news, well, you know where to get that. But if you want to explore how we got here, if you want to journey into what happened before these developments showed up as news on our TV and device screens, then grab a cup of coffee or your favorite drink and let's get into it. Just two weeks ago, the US House Intelligence Subcommittee held the first UFO congressional hearing in more than 50 years. Pentagon officials were there, testifying about UAP, Unexplained Aerial Phenomena, what most of us ordinary Americans call UFOs. The congressional hearing wasn't really big news, though. Sure, it was in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and I think I also saw it on CNN. But not more than once. It sort of fizzled out. I bet the congressional hearing was a much bigger deal for ufologists than it was for the rest of us. To better understand UFOs, ufologists, and the history of UFOs, we spoke with 
Greg Agigian, who joined us from Berlin for this conversation, is a professor of history at Penn State College of the Liberal Arts and the former director of the Science, Technology, and Society program there. Professor Agigian's interest is now focused on studying the history of supernatural and paranormal phenomena. In particular, he's writing a book about the history of UFO sightings and claims of alien contact throughout the world. It's a book that we'll also discuss in this episode. To learn more about Professor Agigian, his many projects and publications, particularly those about UFOs, visit his academic homepage, the link for which is provided in the detailed caption of this episode. So, stay with me as Professor Agigian and I peel the history behind this news. Professor Egan, it is a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you for taking the time for this conversation with me. Before we get into our conversation about UFOs, I'm interested to know how much influence Hollywood has had in our UFO culture, the X-Files, and many more series and movies like that, right? Yeah, yeah, of course, right? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, you have to say right away that that media in general have played an absolutely instrumental role in this phenomenon. It would not never have been what it has ended up becoming without various forms of media playing a role. And Hollywood are one of those things. I mean, the thing with Hollywood that's kind of intriguing to me is the reciprocal relationship between the two. Yes, Hollywood has reciprocal because Hollywood has had an impact on the way we perceive you know, UFOs and, and the potential of UFO visitors coming to Earth as, right, of course, typically it's these menacing um, uh, uh, creatures who uh, per perhaps don't look anything like us, who are here to conquer us and take us over, um, that sort of version of things. But but of course, the other it, it works the other way too, in the sense that UFO uh, that, that that Hollywood has at times had to take its cues from the UFO world. I mean, the best example of that is is Steven Spielberg, really, right? Um, uh, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Was was in fact very much rooted and based in his research in terms of what actual cases looked like, and a lot of those scenes were his attempt to reproduce cases from the files, really, in the case books of of ufologists over the years. Um, but that said, the Hollywood, the, the relationship with Hollywood, to me, is really more complicated than we first think it is. I think our instant thought is Hollywood basically has shaped the way we think about this stuff. The, the, the thing that's kind of intriguing is, particularly say if you look at the 1950s, if you look at the 1950s and you look at the way in which people who said they were actually having encounters, they actually met aliens and talked with them or engaged with them in some form or another, their stories do not map on to the way Hollywood was portraying alien encounters in the 1950s. In the 1950s- was it because it was not sensational enough, not sexy enough? Is that it? I think exactly that was the case. I think I think it was um, that you needed drama, <laughs> and Hollywood wanted drama, and drama comes through confrontation and conflict, and you need some heroes. 
Um, the stories, these contactees, as they called themselves in the 50s, were not about that. They were stories that were very spiritual, very religious. And the heroes were the aliens who were basically here, they said, to save us from ourselves. Not a very dramatic story, not a lot of plot to it, 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 and it was more of a spiritual message. So I think you're quite right. I think part of that was it just didn't seem to register with the dramatic demands of Hollywood. Aliens being heroes and, uh, you know, uh, a spiritual message. How can you make money from that in Hollywood, right? <laughs> it's got to yeah, be some sort yeah, of yeah. drama. Um, how, do you think Hollywood has had an impact in the science I mean, serious science of ufology? Well, I, I, you know, to some extent, I mean, you know, and, and we can broaden this, this discussion about Hollywood to say maybe the question is, I, and often people ask me, to what extent is there evidence that a lot of the people who've been interested in UFOs, and including, as you, you refer to it, it, and they referred to themselves, ufologists, right? People who made this a real study in their lives, how much they've been impacted by science fiction, right? That's yeah. that's something that comes up a lot. And, and certainly that, I think, is one of the things that's worthy of concern. So what's interesting is, is that... I would say that that when you look through a lot of the, the ufological literature, the newsletters, the news bulletins, and all the magazines that got produced over the many, many decades that this has preoccupied people, um, science fiction is there. Hollywood is there. It's not stuff that tends to take uh, up a lot of space in those kinds of things. People take note of things like big blockbuster movies of Spielberg and people like that. But a lot of that simply is not playing a role in that, in that area. <clears throat> we do know, however, that um, in studies, in particularly in one study that was conducted in the 1980s with, about British ufologists and people interested in UFOs, that the evidence there seemed to indicate that a lot of people came to the issue, came to the question of wanting to really pursue this interest in studying UFOs, came to it through an interest in literature about space and science fiction, that, that that's how they first came to this topic. And that's what really got them interested. And then they discovered UFOs and then they sort of really sort of dove deep into that so we know there's some evidence that that took place when you say literature and science fiction but the latter category science fiction does that include hollywood science fiction it's so based on what you're saying hollywood may actually have been an impetus for some people to get into ufology <clears throat> i think so i think i think you can probably safely say that i don't know that i could sit there and point to one particular individual yeah. who that's who that's the case with but i think there's enough evidence to indicate that 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 has served as a spark to yeah. inspire some people are there doctorates in ufology are there no not, no 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 there's no Is program in it there was that was the hope that was the hope the the people for who got involved in this particularly say in the 50s and 60s uh, in those in that early decade, decade and a half, a lot of them, I think, when you look at what they were talking about, they 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 thought of themselves as pioneers. They often talked to, amongst themselves that that you know, um, uh, uh, people laugh at us now, people ridicule us now, but in another twenty years, another ten years, 
Um, this is going to be serious stuff. People are going to look on us as kind of heroic figures who stood up against, you know, the equivalent of what, you know, Galileo had to do against yeah, yeah, the Catholic yeah. Church. We're the we're the new Galileos and that and that it's going to be its own scientific discipline. But it hasn't and we're come. going to be recognized for that. And it never happened. Interesting. Um, um, there may even be some stigmatization of the quote-unquote scientific study of ufos in some universities uh, they may you know i don't know <laughs> laugh at their colleagues if they take this seriously um you know we americans readily talk about ufos we we use the term ufo and uh, you know i just talked about hollywood the term evokes sort of entertainment fun curiosity it doesn't provoke thought um, and, and I sort of I bring this up not to get philosophical here. I'm just wondering before the term UFO was adopted, and I guess these as we use UAP, um, what did how did people express this sort of extra extraterrestrial being concept? Were there other terms that were used? Well, the the term that was the first term that came onto the scene with the first sighting of something along these lines that gets recorded in the 1940s, 1947 to be exact, was flying saucer. Um, and what's really intriguing is flying saucer or flying disc. That was the other term that was widely used. Um, and both of those basically get translated literally um, into all sorts of other languages. So Portuguese, Spanish, German, French, Russian, they all sort of borrow on that terminology. It becomes a universal term um, that's going to have currency even well beyond UFO gets coined. UFO gets coined. It starts even unidentified flying objects gets gets used as a as a term not widely circulated within military circles already in the 40s but it gets adopted by the American Air Force in the early 50s because they are unhappy with the fact that people are talking about flying saucers. They believe this was confusing matters because right, anybody who would see something strange would say to themselves, maybe I saw a flying saucer. And then when you talked with them, you'd say, well, what you'd realize what they're describing looked nothing like a saucer. So why are we <laughs> using this term? Why are we using that term? Why that so specific they, geometric shape? Yeah. So they end up adopting the using the term unidentified flying object as a way to get out of this problem. And of course, all it did was it created a new problem. And and you know, critics came along after that and pointed out that UFO has its own problems. It, it, it makes all sorts of assumptions, right? And you yeah. just break down the three terms, unidentified. Well, unidentified to whom? To whom is it unidentified, right? It, it, that implies the problem lies with the percipient, right? Yeah. This next thing is flying. Is it something that's really being piloted? Is this a meteorological phenomenon, right? Is this an optical illusion? It assumes there's something flying. That's interesting. And then, of what course, if it's you, his object. Yeah, what if, what if it's not flying? What if it's, you know, some sort of uh, vehicle or some sort of being that's already landed or it's here already? Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. that's interesting. Um, why don't we take a short break and then talk about uh, UFO in other cultures and religions and their history? We'll be right back. Here's a question for you. Do you think the scientific community is supportive of UFO research? Not according to Dr. Avi Loeb of Harvard University. 
who is the former chair of the Department of Astronomy there. You can listen to my conversation with him in Season 1, Episode 21. I talked with him shortly after last year's UFO Congressional hearing. By the way, how do you think outer space aliens would react if they witness how we humans treat space? We leave junk in space, we crash things into the moon. As Professor Moraba Jaw of Aerospace Engineering and Engineer Mechanics at the University of Texas at Austin shared with us in Season 2, Episode 17, this is a serious issue, not just for space environment, but also for safety of us humans on Earth and up in space. And Professor Jaw is doing something about it. You should check out his startup, Privateer.com, which he co-founded with Steve Wozniak. Of course, we talk about his startup in that episode as well. Now, let's get back to our conversation with Professor Agigian. Professor Agigian, continuing our conversation from the previous segment in which you uh, pinpointed 1947 as the first recording of flying saucers, UFOs, if you will, how far back in history are there discussions, references, writings about UFOs or whatever they were called, the phenomena uh, back then? Yeah. So this is a very thorny, thorny. <laughs> controversial, thorny, thorny question because it it's it's caught up in 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 moving both from the present to the past, to the peasant to the past to the present. Um, and of course, you have many people by the 1960s in the UFO community who start to make the argument that things that were seen centuries and millennia earlier were actually flying saucers, right? Um, what we know. What is you mean that is that we, we, we experts now, contemporary experts going back and reinterpreting mm -hmm. past <clears throat> events, sort of in hindsight. I see. Right, and it's a, and as you well know, I mean, we've got a term for that. It's called an anachronism. It's yeah. saying that that I, my terminology and my framework, I'm going to export that to the past and and project that onto the past. You know, historians we've 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 grown to be quite dubious about that kind of yeah. enterprise. It it comes it's loaded, but what we could say is that we know since at least the time of the Babylonians. So we're dealing with fifteen hundred BCE, right? Um, uh, from the time of the Babylonians onward, we know that most societies and civilizations have seen and wanted to understand patterns in the heavens. Um, those patterns have been understood as things that would be helpful to make sense of things like seasons and things like that. But it's also been understood that these kinds of phenomenon, these kinds of patterns were believed to have an impact on earthly terrestrial events and human history. And so the heavens have been for a very long time, what's going on above us have been seen as things and, and the things that are going on there as things that are not only worthy of observation, they are in fact things that have meaning and they need to be read. The heavens need to be read. And so 
when things like meteors, when things like comets that, that we now recognize are probably what a lot of people were seeing or any other kind of heaven, you know, celestial or heavenly anomaly was spotted. The idea was that this was something that had to be interpreted. It meant something to us. And it was likely because societies have typically posited the gods or God to be a heavenly being of some kind. The idea was that this was a holy message of some kind. It needed to be divined. And so reading things in the sky as messages to humanity, that's a, that's a phenomenon that goes back a very long time. It's fairly universal. And I think that's what we can say about where anomalous things that people saw start to get fleshed out and talked about. And they end up having basically theological and spiritual meanings. When we talk about theology, I immediately think of Christianity, um, in which humans are the center of the earth. Going back to the Galileo example, you know, the, the earth does not revolve around the sun, it's the other way around. If that's the case, was there any room in Christianity for any discussion of uh, aliens? Certainly gods were purged, you know, those are sort of paganism pr prior to Christianity. Oh yeah, oh definitely. Um, so it, the, 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 the discussion and debate about whether there are extraterrestrial civilizations out there um, beyond earth is something that was already on the table being discussed and debated among philosophers in, in, in ancient Rome ancient Greece, it was already back there. Um, and when Christianity comes along, it continues on. And in fact, by the time you get to say that, I think at least the 17th, probably the latest is the 17th century, most literate people in the Christian West at least, believed that it was likely there were extraterrestrial civilizations on, on the planets. Um, and on the moon, by the way, the moon would have been included in that. Um, and you have, in fact, theologians who um, go to great lengths, who try to, in fact, make calculations about how many people, inhabitants, planets like Jupiter or planets like Mars, or how many people live on the moon. That's wild. On, how would they do yeah, that? Based Based on extrapolations from what they know, they do, they know about where the, the the society they were living in at the time. So they would maybe use England right as their model and say, well, if England has this many people on this much land surface, then we can surmise that there are. And I think one calculation about Jupiter was that there were several trillion, a trillion or something people, or several billion people living on Jupiter. So so. <laughs> they they talked, they took it seriously. It was easily integrated. It was not seen as a problem for Christianity, but but it was it, it was certainly debated, but it was not something that was seen as a ludicrous concept, as a ludicrous idea at all. So how did that fold into into Christianity? That 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 meant that we're not the center of the earth or that we're sharing, I'm sorry, center of the universe, or that we're now sharing the universe with other beings, right? Yeah, we're sharing the universe with other beings. 
Um, well, and one of the things it does, I, I, I actually think the, the interesting thing is what happens after the, the, the UFO question comes up back, you know, in the, already in the 50s, they start, the, the media, journalists start interviewing theologians and church figures to ask them what this means. And, and if so, for instance, you know, the question that arises is, are these aliens saved? Um, they clearly <laughs> haven't yet heard the word. Of, uh, they haven't heard the gospel yet. right? Yeah. So will they be saved? And there are theologians who came forward and said, well, you know, there's different things. First of all, yes, if the, if the aliens are visiting us, it's going to be our obligation to bring the word of Christ to them. But then they said, that, on the other hand, um, keep in mind that, you know, um, the, you know, under under some Christian faiths, the idea was, you know, if, for instance, uh, an infant, for instance, dies, they do not go to hell because they haven't been able to accept the, you know, the gospel of Christ. They haven't been exposed to it yet. So these, these beings would, in fact, be saved and would, in fact, go to heaven because they did not have the opportunity to be exposed to Christ's message. So you, you of have all the some... things to think about. That's what they were thinking about. That's what they were thinking about. Yeah. Yeah. How about other religions? Let's say uh, Hinduism, Judaism, um, Islam. Did, did, did they have any sort of, uh, you know, dogmas or any sort of uh, teachings about UFOs? That's a good question. There I'm not on solid footing, so I wouldn't, uh -huh. I, I wouldn't dip a toe in there because I'm not familiar enough with, with any of those things. What, what, what can be said is we certainly know that the, the, the question of, of flying saucers and the question of, of UFO appearances that when, when this starts to happen, the center of gravity, no pun intended for all of this <laughs> stuff, is going to be basically, mostly it's the Atlantic world. It's, yeah. it's Europe, North and South America, and then you could throw in Australia, New Zealand as well as, as, a, yeah. as a place there. That's really the center of gravity for this. And then it starts to spread as you get into the, the particularly the 1980s, into places like the Middle East, into um, uh, Asia, particularly South Asia and, and Japan. Um, Japan's probably the first, first Eastern um, uh, East Asian country that really starts to take on this stuff. So clearly this must have led to those very similar kinds of conversations as we're having right now about the Christian West. Uh, I just haven't, I haven't seen those conversations. I'm not, I'm not been exposed to them. So I don't know how those played out. Is this um, another sort of impact of Hollywood's dramatization of UFOs, you think? that you know our movies have spread worldwide and now you have middle easterns watching these and there's interest um you think that's part of it oh i think it had to have been part of it certainly it's part of that i mean you know one of the things you you can say is that is that the ufo the ufo phenomenon that begins, I think everyone who works in this area recognizes this phenomenon really does begin as a cultural phenomenon. It begins in the United States. It's an American phenomenon. And what happens in the discussions that happen in the States always seems to have an impact elsewhere, disproportionately so. So there is a process of what I think you'd call in other areas of popular culture, Americanization that yeah. goes on and gets, gets exported. That said, 
I do think beyond the media, you have to also acknowledge that people who are engaged in the UFO, in the study of UFOs were among the, the first really, and they're amazing about it, on shoestring budgets with nothing but pen and paper and a typewriter, they globalized their movement. They globalized and created networks, global international connections amongst one another across the world through correspondence, through trading news bulletins and newsletters with one another very, very quickly. So, so this stuff is, is spreading through networks of just grassroots people really interested in the subject. Did any of this passion eventually lead to some sort of paying jobs for any of these people, or does it continue as a hobby? I'm wondering <clears throat> if there's any UFO institutions, communities. <clears throat> there were, there, uh, and there have been. There have been organizations. Um, um, the big ones in, <clears throat> for instance, the United States, in the beginning, in the 50s and the 60s were APRO, um, which was, ends up being based eventually in uh, Tucson, in Arizona. Uh, the other was an organization called NICAP. Um, uh, working in those organizations, and there are other organizations in other countries as well that sort of mimic these organizations. But you also had lots and lots of small local groups. Sometimes they were often referred to in the early days as saucer clubs. They were, they might just be a handful of people. Yeah, saucer clubs. And they'd be a handful of people who like to just read about stuff. But these bigger organizations were national and even international. APRO was international, had correspondence throughout the world. But basically everybody was doing this on a voluntary basis. They did it on their own free time. Um, The people who um, ran these organizations tended to do it in their, their own time. Or, or had or were able to carve out enough time to do it. Uh, they were spending their own money to to finance this stuff. Um, it was it was hard to keep it together. Um, that's why a lot of lot of organizations would come and go uh, would come and go and they we've kept never apart all the time. So I deduce from from what you're saying is that we've never had uh, some sort of billionaire coming in and funding something. An organization not like that no no you've never had there's been always that, that dream that somebody would do that and and fund a private research institute i mean the the closest that's come is is robert bigelow um the the aerospace uh, and defense uh, contractor um who uh, you know basically since i i know it may even go back to the 80s but certainly since since the 1990s has been very interested in this stuff and has financed various kinds of uh, institutions and projects to look into this but um those things have all sort of either been dissolved or been morphed into other kinds of things and they certainly haven't translated into any sort of big grass movement they've been very top heavy um, and very private very private um, both both at the corporate level and at the um, kind of more secretive level of things uh, you do you have had of course then uh, governmental agencies who've been created over the years yeah um, you, you know those have been mostly military Probably the the one exception has been in France, where it's gone under different names over the over the decades. But uh, but had has had an organization there that has been set up that was privately funded organization or governmental. 
it's 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 been government it's been it's been fu- federally funded there but it it's the, the, the most of the people involved in it or or who know about it have often complained that it just simply was not given a lot of money or a lot of resources and and virtually every single <clears throat> governmental project that ever came down the pike whether it was in France whether it was in um England or the United States or the Soviet Union over the years um, all of these, the people people involved always complained that they just simply weren't given a lot to work with. That the the the, the funding wasn't wasn't very stable, wasn't very good, and that they weren't given the the kind of investigative uh, uh, resources they would need in terms of you know personnel and things like that. Um, so there's always that hardly encourages research. No, no, but but you know if you want to if you want to take it from the perspective of the people who oversaw these projects, I think the one thing we know from the examples we've seen over the years is that time and time again, the authorities who've overseen these projects, who've supervised them, have determined, usually in fairly short order, there just is not anything there. There's just simply nothing. And remember, when when these things are governmental, again, mostly military, their interest is in intelligence, which means they are interested in one thing and one thing only, not the scientific, you know, uh, relevancy of these things. They're interested in do these things represent a threat to national security? And time and time again, the conclusion was no. And then you could then you saw the next step, which was usually then people saying, "Why are we funding this? Then? Why is this thing still around? <laughs> Why not healthcare? Why not this infrastructure?" Yeah, so so that's what typically has happened in almost all of these cases: is officials higher up sit, simply come to the conclusion, "We don't care about the scientific significance of these things. That's not our that's not our job. The the these things don't seem to be." things that represent any kind of military threat of any kind. There's no intelligence to be garnered from studying them. So right now, all we're interested, all we're really doing is doing PR work. We're taking phone calls from people who say they saw something and we're wasting a lot of resources on, on tracking these things down. Without the potential, without any real potential of finding something concrete. Right. right? That's right. that that's the view. Now again, Plenty of ufologists say that's that's been the problem, right? Yeah. And they suspect that military and government officials are hiding things. And if you're if you're a real conspiracy theorist, that's where you go. Other people just say, no, that's you know what they are is really just they're they're just really thick headed. They're 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 not smart people. And that really what it is is it's their ignorance that's speaking. They don't mean anything nefarious. They just simply don't know any better. So those are the criticisms you typically get. Yeah. We'll be back after a short break to talk about your forthcoming book, which is, of course, all about UFOs and its history. We hope you are enjoying this podcast. And if you are, then why not treat us to a cup of coffee? That's right. For the price of a cup of coffee, you too can become a monthly supporter of the Peel.News podcast. We rely on your support to continue this program, to continue peeling the history behind our news. Supporting us is easy. Just click 
the support link in the detailed caption of this episode. And while you're there, check out the information about our guests and other attributions and links. And thank you! Professor Yigian, your forthcoming book is titled After the Flying Saucers Arrived, The History of UFOs and Contact with Aliens. And it will be published by Oxford University Press. Um, first of all, when can we expect it? And second of all, tell us about this book. <laughs> uh, when can we expect it? I am literally just embarking on the last chapter burning the midnight oil to, to so to oh i am i am i it unfortunately covid and the restrictions and the limitations that put on archival research and libraries and stuff has delayed things so it's it's been delayed a bit more than i wanted to but it it's a it's a lot of material so the the hope is to definitely have this done and submitted by the fall and then it's in the hands of my editor and the press. And it, yeah, I think the hope is that we're going to see it next year. That's wonderful. Wonderful. So tell yeah. us about this book. Well, it is um, basically a history of the kind I think of it really as a, a history of the uh, UFO and alien contact phenomenon as it's played out in human history since the uh, really that first, those first sort of references to flying saucers in the late 1940s. Um, yes, and, and I make reference to earlier kinds of, of uh, strange, anomalous aerial phenomenon that people saw, some of which we talked about earlier uh, in history. But to me, what I'm interested in is I'm interested, as I often say to people, I do find UFOs really interesting, but I actually find the people who are interested in UFOs more interesting. I know, and that's right? what I'm really interested <laughs> in. That's what I'm yeah. interested in. Um, I'm interested in the people who made UFOs make history, and so so this is a story about about human beings because in the end, that's what really what this to me is about. The the UFOs and the aliens. There's a lot been over the decades. Lots of speculation. Lots of questions. Lots of reports and sightings. Um, people go back and forth over and over again. But but in the end, what it is, is that people keep coming back and bringing to the topic uh, uh, new understandings, new ways of framing this stuff that I think really reveal a lot about our times. It reveals a lot about our attitudes about science and technology, sometimes even politics. Um, and it reflects the changes that we've experienced as societies. And so that's really what I want to track and try, try to find out as I write this story of how we get, how this, this, this thing that started with one guy in Washington State flying his private plane around saying he saw some weird things and comes down and lands and you know tells it to reporters and how this thing that then within a day gets earns the moniker flying saucer. How we got from that, which could well have just been one quirky little article in one newspaper somewhere, how that has turned into a phenomenon that now has gone on for decades that has gotten people excited, people scared, gotten people visiting psychiatrists, asking for the aid <laughs> of engineers, um, and, and had 
militaries and scientists looking into the issue. That to me is what I'm interested in sort of tracking and chronicling. Do you think early on UFO, uh, ufology, well, back then probably wasn't called ufology just yet, but the concept of UFO tapped into our fears. You said people were getting scared, tapped into, I don't know, uh, apocalypse, that sort of thing. Oh, definitely. Definitely. So one of the things that I think is, is no question is there is, and it starts very, very early on because you have to keep in mind that, that those first sightings that get talked about, there's, there's some sighting, you know, the first ones that get earned the moniker flying saucer, they start in 19, the summer of 1947. Even the year before that over Sweden, there were some very strange things that were seen over Sweden and that whole affair was referred to as the ghost rocket scare. They were referred to as ghost rockets. Um, in all of these cases, both of those cases, we got to remember we're dealing with societies that had just gotten out of World War II. Yeah. They, they vividly remember V2 rockets in Europe, right? Yeah. And they remember um, secret weapons. They Everyone is very familiar by now about the atomic bombs of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. They know that the superpowers over, over the 40s into the 50s are developing these things and have ICBMs and things like that. That's on very much of people's minds. And so the, the, in those very first few years, uh, very few people look to aliens as the explanation. The, 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 what seemed to be the, the explanation that was out there that most people adhered to was either that this stuff is nonsense and it's mass hysteria, or these are definitely just new secret weapons of either the Soviet Union or the United States. So that was scary. <laughs> that was scary because you're wondering what what kind of super weapons are these things, right? What what carnage could they could they ha wreak havoc on you know in 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 our world today? The other thing you want to keep in mind though is that that as much as fear and anxiety and a lot has been made of that by people who've studied this subject culturally over the years, the the the, the fear and anxiety around the Cold War definitely is a is a critical part of the story which comes right starts in the 50s really during the eisenhower already so, yeah it's yeah. there it's there and that's that's what gets folded into this stuff we have to remember there's another side of this which, which is, is gets lost which is enthusiasm excitement um optimism <laughs> um again the other thing is is this is also an age in which particularly in the united states there's this sense that we can do almost anything. I mean, we have these enormous ability to create fabulous new kinds of, of airplanes. We have new technologies at our fingertips, right? Television has just made it, right? And, and we're, we're doing all of these wondrous things. Um, UFOs seem to represent, in fact, something fantastic, something marvelous. Um, not something scary. And so when you, again, talk about those people we talked about before, those first contactees, um, yeah, there was some talk about fearing mass destruction, but a lot of the talk was about, you know, these super beings from another world, they, they're advanced and they've shown us the path to the future. And it is a world that is a technological and moral utopia. Technology science is going to lead us into getting rid of all of our prejudices and we're going to enter a bold new 
utopian world in which there's harmony, peace, and we have everything available to us. We're going to conquer all problems. So for a lot of people, UFOs seem to actually represent something really, really cool, really neat. You touched on something really interesting. You know, this is happening in the late 40s, starting in the late 40s, um, well into the, you know, 50s. It becomes really uh, an important um, sort of issue, at least in the media, uh, uh, from entertainment perspective anyway, for many people, for the general population. But I want to go back to this thing that you said, we can do anything. Do you think part of the Americanization of the UFO concept is the fact that we were more prosperous, hence had more cognitive bandwidth, available bandwidth to talk and chat about this versus, uh, you know, countries such as Poland or East Germany, or let's say, um, you know, India or Japan, uh, all of which, you know, Japan was impacted by World War II, East Germany and all these other companies or countries or, or, or many nations in Africa, or I just mentioned India, in which they weren't as prosperous and people had their minds on more <laughs> immediate earthly yeah. um, necessities, yeah. urgencies. Yeah, I think I think that's a I think that's a, a reasonable sort of line of questioning and a, and a way to start searching for answers. I I think there's no question about it that 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 following World War II, you know, the United States along with the Soviet Union, but especially the United States, because it's relatively you compare it to the, all these other countries um, who were involved in World War II. U.S. was least touched by it, shall we say, exactly. directly than these other countries. It comes out, uh, as you point out, very prosperous. It comes out as very powerful. Mm -hmm. It's also interested in willing to, in fact, exercise this new authority on the international scene. Um, commercially, of course, we are now a powerhouse, if not the powerhouse in the world, right, with our economy. And so there's no question that you know, you're going to see something go on if you compare it to say, if you look at it, say with the Europeans who are in the process of reconstruction, right? Reconstruction is gonna go on for in, in Europe, you know, well into the early 1950s. And you could say that even if you go to Eastern Europe, it's gonna continue on throughout the 1950s. I think yeah. something like rationing, I believe only stops in East Germany, I think in the 1959 or 1960. Oh boy. So, so these are societies that, as you point out, uh, many of these societies are societies that um, 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 are going to not have a kind of a reciprocal relationship with the United States. It's going to be largely a lot of one-way traffic, if yeah. you will, in terms of ideas and cultural exchange. Um, so the United States is on people's radar. It's it's and 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 what happens in the United States is always big news. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. and that travels and that travels very fast, especially the Hollywood culture. I have a couple of follow up questions on the early years of UFO sighting, uh, flying saucer sightings in the U.S. I thought it started in Arizona, but you just mentioned Washington State. Tell us mm -hmm. about that. Yeah, so the 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 sighting that precipitated all of the things that come and follow, right? I mean, again, people people will excavate and find some other sightings or something that was seen 
uh, a few months earlier here and there. But the thing that precipitated all of this was the sighting of a guy by the name of Kenneth Arnold. He was um, uh, in his free time. He was a private pilot. Um, and he was flying near around Mount Rainier. Um, and the reason he was flying that afternoon was he was looking for wreckage of a cargo plane. There was a reward for anybody who found or who, who spotted this cargo plane that had gone down. Um, so he was looking for that. And as what he year was is looking, this again, 1947? This is, a, this is the, this is, yeah, this is June, 1947. Um, and as he is is flying around, he says what happens is he catches a, a reflection, you know, that catches his eye. And he immediately starts to think he sees something, but then it goes away. And then he sees again and he looks and he gets very scared. He thinks I'm going to have to, I may be close to a, a midair collision here. Um, uh, so starts starts taking a turn. And as he does, he says he sees uh, in formation, it's nine objects flying in some sort of formation together um, were things that were, and when he later had artists do a rendition of it, they look kind of like the wings of a bat, like a wings of a bat. Um, he ends up coming, you know, landing. He didn't find the cargo plane, um, talks about it with reporters, gets interviewed by people about it. This is the summer. It's a time in June when, right, a lot of new, the news cycle is a little slow. So reporters are looking for good stories. And he starts talking about this stuff. And I think it's the day after, if I'm not mistaken, a reporter is asking him a little bit about, could you describe how these things moved? And he said, well, they, they move, something like he said, they moved kind of like um, a saucer would if you skipped it across water. And some enterprising journalist realizes I see a headline, flying saucer. So it's this journalist who then coins this term flying saucer. Kenneth Arnold never did that, never described them that way. Um, six weeks later, Gallup poll, the Gallup poll does a survey of Americans and finds that 90% of Americans have heard the term flying saucer. That's that's before the internet, right? That's, that's, that's pretty amazing stuff. before Google. It's it's a it's a meme, it's out there. Within six weeks, everybody, virtually everybody's heard the term flying saucer. When did saucer. Arizona come into the picture, you know, Area 51 and all of that? Is that yeah, that stuff is much, that's, you know, things like Area 51. I mean, it's it's a it's a real place. It's a place yeah. that, hit, that was being used by the military dating back to the 50s for sure. Um, but it really only enters into UFO lore really in the 1970s. That's really when it first becomes something that anybody really puts a lot of attention to. Um, you have New Mexico and Roswell, which becomes a story in 1947 as well. But Roswell also is interesting because the whole Roswell story about supposedly there was wreckage of a, of a flying saucer and, and then included bodies that were found of, of, the, of the pilots and the occupants. Um, that story, which had a very short shelf life, it it, it came onto the Why scene. Why is that? That seems like a bigger story. 
Well, it was at the originally, but then the, the Air Force comes in and corrects itself about it and corrects what was being said to people. Um, and soon it kind of disappears. It becomes really not a big conversation piece in the UFO world until you get kind of, I guess, to the late 70s and the early 80s, when it reappears that the story is excavated by some ufologists who then take it up and then sort of revisit it. Um, and that's a common thing. That's a common yeah. thing in the UFO scene to do that kind of thing. Let's take a break here. Stay with me and Professor Igigian as we get into the perspective. The History Behind News podcast is available on all your favorite podcast platforms. Of course, we love your reviews and ratings of our podcast, especially on Apple and Spotify. And remember, don't keep us to yourself. Tell a friend about the History Behind News podcast. Professor Gigian, what role has the U.S. government played in the UFO culture? We touched on some of it in the earlier segments. I'm wondering, has it been largely sort of dismissive, at least outwardly, or has it been perhaps um, too secretive, hampering UFO research? Mm -hmm. So the, the, the military, and specifically, we have to say, for most of the history of the UFO phenomenon, since the, 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 the mid 40s. Um, the branch of government that's been interested in this has been the Air Force. Um, that changed as we've seen more recently. We know that from um, uh, mid middle part of the two, at least from the middle part of the 2000 knots onward, we know um, the, probably the most vocal part of the military about these issues has been the Navy. But, but for most of the history, it's been the Air Force, uh, which seems, of course, probably obvious why they would be interested in this kind of stuff. Um, and the Air Force has, since those first reports of flying saucers in the summer of 47, uh, began studying this stuff, uh, organized uh, some people within uh, intelligence services um, uh, to collect reports, to collect maybe news articles about this, to look into these issues where they thought it was necessary. Um, they didn't tend to do much by way of any kind of field work. Um, a lot of it involved maybe at most making a few phone calls or checking with a few people uh, at the scene. There were, see, by the 1960s, there were in fact cases where Air Force personnel would start to show up at, a, at, 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 at uh, sites where there were sightings of things. Um, but the Air Force generally was uh, by and large pretty dismissive of the stuff. Uh, they tended to, we know, not trust witnesses. Um, uh, they did tend to put, of course, more stock in pilots, particularly military pilots, but also civilian pilots as well. But even there, we know they, they believed that um, from their own sort of work in, in use of psychology and psychophysics, that, that it, was, it was very common for pilots to make mistakes in terms of what they might have seen and to be able to remember what they had seen and, and describe it after the fact. Uh, and they were extremely skeptical about civilian reports. 
uh, about these things. And so uh, the, the military has, of course, however, when questioned about things, historically has, of course, had to be nervous about sharing anything about their 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 reports and their evidence why uh, with the with the public because there's always the, the concern that you might be revealing things that might be valuable particularly valuable to adversaries of the United States such as Keep your ability mind. your technological ability to monitor to monitor situation to exactly gather so it, it's not just the fact that you know we we know for instance for a fact that that for instance the the famous U2 plane the U2 plane of the 1950s a spy plane yeah. was mistaken many times by pilots for a flying saucer because these pilots were flying at maybe 30,000 or 40,000 feet, then another 30 or 40,000 feet above them, right? They see this thing and it's also going way faster than them. Yeah, and they're yeah. like, what on earth is that? <laughs> um, I don't know of anything that can do that, right? And of course the military would say, we don't know anything about that. We don't know what you saw. Maybe you saw a weather balloon. We know that. So there's that. But it is also the fact that you do not want to reveal how you're able to do your reconnaissance. How do you gather your information? Uh, and that seems reasonable to me. It seems reasonable to me for them to keep that a secret <laughs> and to not share that with the public. Right. How is it that the Navy has become um, in the forefront of UFO sightings? lately and not the air force anymore and we know about the congressional hearing that just took place uh, a couple of yeah. weeks ago why the name that's a good that's a really good question i've yet to hear a an, an answer that may because i think the thing that i've wondered about is this is both not just you know why we're getting all this information coming out of the navy but also why has the air force been so quiet i know right? Yeah. It's it, it 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 it's a it's an odd thing. I don't know if it has to do with the culture inside the Navy. Um, I don't know if the silence of the Air Force is is more of a reflection of their history of engaging this. You know, that is to say, maybe saying like, finally, somebody else is out in the lead. We don't have to touch this. <laughs> we don't Why want to deal we, with this anymore. We we tried to get out of this for decades. I don't know what it is. It's it's a really intriguing has, question. Has um space force the new branch of our military gotten involved in this where they present that i at don't the know hearing? i mean the the talk the, the talk is certainly um that that with this new office that's going to be set up and it's supposed to be set up by the end of june right and up and running um uh that is going to be a task force designed to look into what's now called uap or un unidentified aerial phenomenon that that any branch of the military and certainly of the government, that includes NASA, but certainly Space Force as well. All of these different branches are now going to be at least invited to take part in a collaborative enterprise of collecting information and getting it to this new task force. At least in theory, all of those kinds of agencies, which Again, that was not formally the case. Earlier, earlier, that was never an issue. NASA, for instance, never got itself involved in that stuff. In principle, at least, all of these kinds of things, will, all of these agencies and, and offices will be asked to share information that might be relevant. So this um, office this is going to coordinate office. all information um, about... In, in that's a good thing. In principle, yeah. 
That's a very it good is thing. a good thing. It is a good thing. The question is, of course, you know, how do you and, you know, this came up in the hearings a few weeks ago. How do you standardize all that information? What do you, you know, who analyzes it? On what basis do you analyze it? Um, um, and, you know, I, I suppose then the next question is, are you really going to be able to have the resources to be able to pull this off and do this? Um, that's always been the, the perpetual, the chronic problem of any of these enterprises, I think they are going to be flooded with a lot of information, a lot of data. <laughs> the question is, how do you separate out the useful information from the information that might be less useful, right? And how do you start- This is the recipe for, uh, for a new branch of our government getting bigger and bigger, potentially, yeah. right? Because they need more yeah. funding. Yeah. In the last couple of minutes that we have, I have two following questions. One is, is there one juicy conspiracy theory that stands out for you in all of the UFO research that you've done? Oh God, there's so I many. I know there are so many. There's so and many I don't want ones. us to get too much into it. I'm just wondering. I I, I won't I won't get I, the I will just mention the one I most recently, just literally this week, have been looking more deeply into and writing about for my book. And that's the 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 kind of conspiracy theory developed by the the famous writer John Keel. Uh, John Keel, most probably most famous for his 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, about, oh, turned yeah, into yeah. a movie, but with Richard yeah. Gere in it, about a, 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 a large winged creature who gets associated with all sort of strange happenings. Keel writes, starts, to, starts getting into the UFO biz around 1966, and then just starts right, get diving really deep and, 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 Right around 1970, 71, he, he, he comes out, he publishes four books, one after the other, that look into this. And he makes this really fascinating argument that connects all sorts of bizarre things from, from uh, people being visited by strange figures all in black, right? The men in black phenomenon after they see a UFO sighting who are intimidating them. Women who report strange figures in black cloaks who are peering in their windows or hanging out in their backyards. Um, people are getting strange phone calls with voices that are metallic and not in, in a language they can't understand. He connects all of this stuff together with the UFO sightings and comes to this argument that what's, what's really going on is that all of these things are, are, are basically what he calls ultra-terrestrials. These are not extraterrestrials, not aliens. What they are is they're beings from another dimension. And they are playing with us and they are toying with us. And the Air Force may be in cahoots with them. It's not clear to him what the case is. Ooh, that's uh, a good one. And he comes one. to the view that, that we're being threatened by these ultraterrestrials who may in fact really be, we may be being used as pawns that what we're viewing, our reality isn't really real. We are, we are really just playthings of these ultra-terrestrials. It's a, it's a dark, sinister world. It's a weird worldview, and it's really cool. <laughs> it's a really cool thing to read about. He's, I'm he's glad I asked that question. That is a juicy yeah. one. It kind of has a yeah. little bit of a flavor of the movie series, the series Matrix, that this is not A little real. bit, a little bit. Um, if you want to share just one point about the history of ufos what would it be 
in closing. The one point I would make is just to keep in mind that UFOs don't make history. People make UFOs make history. Such as John Keel. Interesting. Uh, Professor Egan, thank you so much for educating me and our listeners. You're welcome back to the Peel.News anytime. And to our listeners, if you know of any history that could provide more perspective from the past on this subject, please share it with us and tell us what's your perspective. Thank you, uh, Professor Egan. Thank you. The opinions and statements of our guests are their own. We neither agree nor disagree with them. We're only interested in the perspective they provide through history. At the Peel.News, we're honored that our guests share their expertise with us, most of which are based on years of scholarship and research, and we provide links to their projects and publications for your benefit, to review them if you wish. Otherwise, we're not affiliated with our guests. We just think they teach us pretty cool history, the history behind our news. Also, unless we explicitly inform you, we're not affiliated with any institutions, including Amazon, for which book links are shared here from time to time for your convenience. Finally, as a reminder, we don't do news here at the Peel.News. We peel the news for the history behind it. And our mission is not to provide a complete account and analysis of the past, rather is to highlight some issues and incidents in our history that may poke and prod your discerning minds into seeking some perspective to our news. And if you disagree with our take on history, well then, it means we've succeeded in getting you to think about the history behind news. And of course, share your thoughts with me by leaving your comments about this episode right on our homepage at www.thepeel.news. Just click the email icon in the lower right corner of your screen. I love to hear from you. I love to learn from you. Until next time, this is Adele, the host of the Peel.News.